Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for coming out tonight, man. You guys are awesome. You know, actually, that's exactly what I hear in my head every time I say that line. <laughs> Now, for our listeners at home or wherever you may be in podcast land, we've got a special show for you tonight. To celebrate Disrupting Japan's fourth anniversary, we are podcasting live from Super Deluxe in Roppongi with some of the most innovative people on the face of the planet that is, Japan's startup ecosystem. So, Let me, uh, let's everyone get their drinks together for a kampai. And uh, listeners at home, feel free to drink along with us. Uh, over the last four years, disrupting Japan has become bigger and more influential than I ever imagined it, it could be. Uh, thank you so much for everything you've done to support the show. Thank you for listening. It's been an amazing four years, and the next four years are going to be even better. So, kampai. All right. Let's get started. Now, for these anniversary shows, every year we have a theme, and this year it is foreign founders in Japan. And on stage tonight, we have three, well, I guess four, fearless foreign founders who have taken very different roads to developing their, their companies here in Japan. So with introductions, on my far left is Jay Winder, who has established uh, Make Leaps, which is Japan's leading SaaS invoicing system. And before that, you had a, another company But I think a lot of you know Jay for running the Hacker News Meetup here in Japan. Yeah. In the center, we've got Paul Chapman, co-founder and CEO of MoneyTree, which is one of Japan's fastest rising fintech startups and one, a, a true you know, B2C SaaS success story in Japan. Thanks, Tim. Pleasure to be here. And on my immediate left is Casey Wall, the CEO and founder of Wall and Case, which is a recruiting company, which doesn't sound that startup-y to begin with, but Casey's also founded Redbrick Ventures, which was an accelerator that spun out several startups. His company's deeply involved in artificial intelligence projects, And you are now on the, the long, hard march towards IPO. So you're doing something right. That's correct. Thank you. Okay, let, let's... I, I want to start this out on a positive note. So I, I am... Well, no, no, it, it's... I, I'm someone who's of the firm belief there, there, there's no real fundamental advantages or disadvantages. It's just differences that you can take advantage of. So what I'd like to lead with is let's talk about what advantages foreign founders have in Japan. Um, Jay, do you want to lead that one off? Sure. <clears throat> um, 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point you just made, Tim, where it's there's good things and there's bad things. And at the end of the day, you just have to figure out how to make something work, right? Actually, like, I think one of my favorite quotes about entrepreneurship um, that I think is, is really interesting is, entrepreneurship is the pursuit of a goal without regard to currently held resources, right? And so that means how much money you have in your bank account. It even means how much, you know, your, your current skill set, right? It even means how society is kind of currently configured right now. You'll have advantages perhaps in some areas and you won't have advantages in other areas and you have to understand those things and move forward it, you know, the best way that you can at the end of the day. So yeah, there's good things and bad things and it's your job to figure out the bad things and compensate or offset them. So what are the good things you got working for you? As a foreigner in Japan. Novelty, <laughs> right? Like if you turn up to a meeting, it's like, oh, that foreigner, yeah, what's he doing here? It's like, oh, he's raising money. It's like, oh, really, for what? It's like, oh, uh, an invoicing company to help Japanese companies send invoices. It's like, but he's a foreigner, <laughs> right? Right? So, right? And yeah. honestly, that's kind of a fair point, right? I am a foreigner, right? And so, you know, it's from a Japanese person who doesn't understand much about me or make leaps to think that somebody could come to Japan understand all of the intricacies of how Japanese companies communicate with each other to the depth where companies would trust that company to put in all their financial details, that's a fair point. So that's something that we need to offset, right, by having a really solid uh, team full of, of people that are really competent and have a lot of, ex a lot of ex uh, expertise and experience in so Japan. It's, so it kind of just generates that curiosity and, and makes it easier to start the conversation? Yeah, that's right. right. That's, right, that uh, that's what I'd say. So, Jay, how did you get there? Sorry to yeah. You know, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> how, how did you get Jay. there where you can get between, you know, the Japanese companies where they, as a foreign founder... Well, that's a good question, Casey. I'm, I'm glad you asked Where they can actually that. trust uh, you well enough to do it. Like, I, what's the advantage to get to that point? Yeah, I would say it's a lot of disadvantages, no? Sure. Um, so, essentially, it is momentum, right? If Because um, I remember when you're first starting out, you're like, hey, I've got this idea, like... You know, in Japan, people tend to use Microsoft Excel for managing their invoicing, and Microsoft Excel was released in 1982, and it's not really like Microsoft Excel is like traditional Japanese business software, right? Like, like people just kind of adopted that and started using it for all sorts of different things in Japan. So we're like, hey, we've got a new way of doing things. How about this? And people are like, uh, how about no? How about we just keep doing things the same way we've always done things? It's like, well, huh, okay, fair point, right? So you, from that point, you have to kind of go out and just get a first customer, right? And just get somebody to use the software. And at that point, you're not even worried about how much money you're making. It's like, will you use this? Will this be interesting for you? Can you, um, you know, when imagine you were, yourself doing this? When you were doing that, did you ever kind of play on your foreignness? Did you ever kind of say, oh, well, this is how they do it in San Francisco. And, and um, you should take a look at it for that reason. Not, not so much. I, I found what's much more convincing is if you get some customers, get some momentum, get some... Um, user testimonials from them and then say, hey, uh, whatever you want to do is fine, but your competitor is doing things now with Make Leaps and they say it's, it's pretty good or you, know, you don't need to be that direct necessarily, but other companies are starting to adopt this and it's giving them these benefits. So if you'd like to consider it, you know, we would be we're very, we're, we're very happy to give you a demo at your office kind of thing. And then once you've got enough of that, it's easy to kind of build off that momentum. Casey, what about you? I mean, I, obviously, it's it's an advantage when you're selling to uh, foreign companies, but when you're selling directly to Japanese companies, does does being a foreigner come with any advantages? 
Uh, I think the, the novelty part there and the willingness that you can break rules and you don't mind skipping out some of the processes that a usual Japanese salesperson uh, would go through. You can go straight to the top a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, even when I was 25, 24, I can meet big company CEOs. And I don't think you could do that anywhere else, uh, having been a foreigner here in Japan. But I, I think ultimately kind of where we are with our SaaS products is we need a Japanese sales team to, to kind of take it through. And mm. we're, we're kind of feeling that at some point we have to hire this Japanese team to work through the Japanese processes. And being a foreigner is a disadvantage to go through large enterprise sales. Mm. Paul? I'd agree with Jay that novelty is useful. Um, you speak Japanese pretty well, right? <laughs> I think I'm speaking English now, though. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Sometimes I can't tell. Um, no, but that, that helps, of course. So if you can speak to people in their own language and you can pattern match as, you know, having a face like this, but everything else kind of more or less is familiar. Um, so uh, it, the, from the way you hand across a business card, uh, the way you bow. I mean, I learned how to speak bank and act like a banker from our Jokyu uh, Komon, so our, our senior advisor. Um, the fact that we found a Jokyu Komon, that was because I think we were foreigners. And another foreigner introduced him to us. Daryl, I don't know if you're here. Um, thank you. And uh, so our Jokyu Komon, our senior advisor, Tsuchash-san, was, uh, uh, was at SNBC, uh, so Sumitomo Bank, for 40 years. But he lived in North America for 14. And um, I think we, the, my two co-founders, oh, the two other founders of Money Trees, is Mark and Ross. Uh, Ross is on his honeymoon, so he's not here tonight. Um, we are the exact same age as Tsuchihashi's daughters. The three of us. So we're the three sons he never wanted. Bakana <laughs> um, No, but you know, it helped. He saw us as kind of not having... We kind of started with a blank slate. He didn't judge us for being this or being that. Like, oh, I think when you come from overseas, you start with a clean record, regardless of what you did in your own country, unless it was really heinous. Um, <laughs> Um, and so that, that's an advantage. So people will meet with you. And so senior people will meet with us. But what we found was they wouldn't meet with, with us again. So I got to meet the head of SMCC six years ago, but I haven't met anyone that senior at that company. Ah, so that might be the novelty effect playing into it. That's right. But yeah. it doesn't really help you get ahead. It just gives you an interesting experience. I got to go to my first yakunshitsu, uh, so the first executive lounge, which is lots of big old leather chairs, really low, and you get tea. Uh, everyone, so some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, but in terms of the advantages of being a foreigner, I mean, thinking differently because, um, you know, I, I think I have this in my own country because of my family's background is not like a long history in Australia, that I'm sort of the child of two cultures. So if you come from overseas, you have two perspectives. Hopefully you have two. If you don't have the Japanese perspective, you don't really have anything to offer. If you have the Japanese perspective plus something else, then you can understand what's good and what's bad about both, and then you can start to try and bridge that. And that's a unique skill that uh, I think being a foreigner or being a, what do they call it, a third culture kid, um, you can do that. Yeah, there's something I'm, I'm hearing here, and I just want to see if I'm, I'm hearing it right. It, it sounds like when you're first starting out, when you're a small company, you can really leverage the, the uniqueness of being a foreigner and the novelty. But as you scale up, that advantage becomes less and less, and you need to become sort of more... Japanese. Is, is that been your experience? It, or? You have to be real. Uh, you yeah. can't just get by on... We, no, neither of us, none of us get by on novelty alone. We have to deliver. We might get a shot at it because they think, well, you know, we'll give them a chance. But uh, does the novelty scale up with the company or has it become no, less important? I, not um, in my experience. I, I, it's a door opener, essentially, yeah. right? But I think that um, as 
Paul was saying, once you show that you can speak Japanese, essentially that's a signaling mechanism. That's saying, look, I get Japan, I get the culture, I'm not going to do anything crazy, right? Like, you can trust us to deliver on the things that we promise to do. So if you can show that, that's what gets you the pro set, like, that, that's what allows you to progress, but the novelty thing might open the door, maybe not, who knows. Okay. So one, just, just to jump in, one point there. So when we did our Series A round, we had to meet a lot of bank uh, investment committees. Uh, because we got money from all three mega bank funds. I think it was two years uh, before that day, maybe three years, uh, our chairman, Jonathan Epstein, who's in the crowd here somewhere. Hi, Jonathan. Um, he introduced us to someone who said, if you got all three mega banks to invest, it would be amazing, but have no idea how you're going to do it. <laughs> Just give yourself a lot of time. But when I was there, our uh, Joku Common, basically, he did this thing. And at the time, I didn't know how to think, I didn't know how to feel about it. I was like a little bit, a little bit, I won't use any more Japanese. Um, <laughs> A little bit conflicted um, because he said, "Oh, this is Paul, and Paul speaks Japanese, and Paul's wife is Japanese, and I mean, he might have, he might, he, he could have just as well have said, Paul puts his bath, you know, his kids in the bath and joins right, them and every night. He can night. use chopsticks, yeah, and, yeah. you know. Um, I think he made me a fifth dan in Aikido, and uh, I got my fourth dan a long time ago, but it's been a while. Um, so that was nice. I got a, a promotion. But the upshot was he had to show them that you can trust him. He's familiar. I'm going to vouch for him. So he acted as a trust bridge." But now we, we've earned our own trust to an extent, and of course we do everything we can to keep it. Okay. Actually, along the same lines, um, so none of us have Japanese co-founders. Um, and I know in my own experience, certainly early on, in the, around 2000 and such, I, when I was meeting with VCs, I would have tremendous pressure to have a Japanese co-founder or... Um, it definitely made it harder to raise money. Um, it made sales harder as well. And so I'm curious, what's been your experience? Have you had those questions? Have you felt those pressures? And, and how did you answer them? Casey, you want to? I don't think I got the co-founder thing right anyways. You know, with uh, I, I did <laughs> way, way, way back a long time ago. Um, yeah, like, really, no. So, I mean, we started in professional services with recruitment, so we can become profitable pretty quickly. Uh, and it's a difficult business to scale, so you can kind of scale without a lot of VC money uh, into there. So only when we decided on an exit and we started to shift into HR technology in the last couple of years have I gone around to VC. And, yeah, none of them really loved me. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if it was me or it was because we have recruiting company roots but are not that sexy or not many people understand HR tech or not many people understand SaaS or we have four different business lines and people don't want a different business line. As, as you or, started moving towards IPO, did those pressures, did the, did you start hitting the questions then about having a foreign corp co or a Japanese co-founder or more Japanese control of the company? Uh, absolutely not. And actually, you know, going Great. back to the question about uh, does novelty scale is like we've gotten deep into this IPO process. The novelty is definitely scaling. Like there's not really many, uh, maybe one foreigner that's taken, founded and taken a company public in Japan. So as you start meeting the investment banks and like... Is that Brian? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for Value, Value Commerce. Commerce. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah. the only one, but even like a lot of them don't know. Like most of the kind of investment bankers around auditors, they've never really met other ones. Right. So you get a lot of reaction and it's kind of easier to, to hire people as well uh, as you're doing this. So yeah, I, I found it an advantage and, and nothing. All right, excellent. Well, I mean, being able to stand out in a crowded market for any reason is an advantage. Um, Jay, what, what, have you felt any of this? Pressure to have foreign or uh, Japanese co-founders? Um, 
So, to some extent, but I think that in Japan, if that is happening, you don't find out about it directly, right? It's just kind of like, wow, really interesting company. Thanks very much. We'd love to stay in touch with your progress. You're like, uh, okay, right? Like, and like that could be for any reason, and it could be the long maybe. Well, yeah, the long maybe, exactly, right? So Actually, believe it or not, that is progress. I, I was uh, back in, I think it was '99. I was not able to open a bank account right. until I had a, a Japanese co-founder. Oh, wow, that's crazy. Not alone, just a bank account. <laughs> well, so that sucks. You've got to remember that I think until the late 1980s, a foreign entity needed a Japanese yeah. partner to own about half of the company. I think so China's still that way. Yeah, So definitely. we've come a long so way. So, yeah, passive aggression is better than active aggression. <laughs> <laughs> if you can choose, yeah, for sure. <laughs> you have to pick. Yeah. Uh, uh, so we, we talked about this a lot. Um, our network wasn't very good, so we just didn't really know anyone at the time who would one take a risk, a chance on us, um, leaving some fantastic job to join this really tiny company six years ago. Um, and the other thing is, I mean, just having a Japanese co-founder really helps in the early days, I, w I imagine, because I haven't done it. But that's not really what you need. What you need is someone who speaks not Japanese natively, but speaks investor. So you need a CFO. Um, and none of us were money people. Um, our chairman, Jonathan, was, uh, was great. He had a great network. I met my first VCs, and, but it took a really long time to kind of figure out how to get money out of them. We sort of turned them upside down and shook them by the legs. That didn't work. Um, but no, we, when we finally got a, a, a CFO who came from Goldman Sachs, um, he's, he is Japanese, uh, and having worked at GS and, and being a Japanese banker, I speak Japanese pretty decently. Uh, I don't speak the language he speaks to investors. Mm -hmm. um, and that's... You know, it's, uh, if you're a lawyer, you speak to other lawyers in a different way. Um, and so that's what you need really is someone who can speak to that constituency because I think as we've proven to some extent, if you speak Japanese and you're not Japanese, you can make it work. Yeah. But if you don't speak investor and you don't grow just purely organically from profits, then, uh, then you're not going to raise money easily. Well, I think there's also there's a, a legitimate concern behind that, uh, especially before a startup gets traction – an investor wants to know, I mean, can you guys really sell in Japan? Um, can you really operate here, um, especially on technology-focused startups? There's a lot of foreign engineers who come to Tokyo, build some great software, and I think, you know, VCs have a, le a legitimate concern saying, okay, well, can you really operate? Can you really sell it? Um, They're also secretly always wondering, oh, is he going to go home? I, I, kid, I kid you yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, no, that is, I think so. <laughs> and you've got, to, you've got to show, no, I'm, I'm, I'm committed, I'm here. I was here at three, you know, on 311. Right. That was, the, that was actually two days before my wedding. <laughs> oh, that's a bummer. Yeah, well, luckily the, you know, the reactor wasn't so bad at that point, so I did get married. But, um, but no, but when you tell them those stories, they're like, oh, you were here too. Yeah. Okay. All so, right. I mean, that's the thing about trust comes from shared experience and shared understanding. At the same time, the other thing is, the Japanese startup ecosystem compared to other places is still fairly early, right? There's still not a huge network of angel investors like there are in Silicon Valley that have kind of done everything and know the process. And I think that's happening now. And once that happens, and it's also in Japan, things are going to make a lot more sense. You're not going to be the outlier. You're just going to be another person doing a company in Japan. Well, I, th I think so. But also, I, I think that San Francisco is the outlier. So if you compare Tokyo to Silicon Valley, that's kind of unfair. Um, if you compare Tokyo to places like London or Berlin, I, I think Tokyo is actually more advanced. If you compare it to places like maybe Singapore or Israel, 
you know, less so, but in the same league. It's, it's just, you can't compare anything to San Francisco, I think. Okay, well, since I just made a comparison to San Francisco, <laughs> let me. Uh, it's not like illegal. I think Timmy is not a good one. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> Try again. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's important to just take into account that, you know, j the Japanese startup ecosystem is at a certain stage, right? And once there's a lot more foreigners that have done IPOs, like, like you know, there's a, like only one or two right, right now, once there's 20, 50, it's just not going to be a big deal, right? Hopefully it'll still be a big deal, but yeah. Oh, well, yeah, sure, for the but people going through I, the you IPOs, need the absolutely. To lead you through it. And I, I think kind of going back to the point is, if you can get an investment banker to join you once you're scaling or uh, kind of raising funds or going towards an IPO, I think that's just going to be a, a game changer for you, right? And, yeah, and yeah. if you're a foreigner, it doesn't matter. But if you have an investment banker, they'll speak very well to all the constituencies that they need. So. I'd just like to apologize to Jay for my comment from before. But <laughs> I, I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, we all compare ourselves uh, in this ecosystem to San Francisco and New York. Um, London does raise a ton of money in fintech. And it's, it's like there's a lot of uh, friendly jealousy. Oh, it looks <laughs> so easy. Oh, they're making so much money. Um, the thing is, you know, in Japan, we often look in the, in particular, Tokyo, because that really is the, the heart of the, the VC ecosystem here. Um, we compare ourselves to San Francisco. We compare ourselves to Tel Aviv. There is nothing similar between Israel and Japan in that regard, mm -hmm. other than, you know, we all like technology. Um, but a, a country that we probably could look at as a good example that's not so far away from us like San Francisco, and I don't mean in distance, but in, in maturity, it's uh, Stockholm, Sweden. So you got uh, Nicholas Zenstrom, Atomic. Uh, so they, so it was the uh, Zenstrom was the uh, the Skype founder, and he's putting a lot of that money back into the ecosystem through Atomic, which is his his fund. Um, and then you've got a bunch of companies like Klarna, which is a fintech uh, a fintech unicorn. They seem to have that that cycle going. We don't have a cycle happening yet, and I think there's a couple of reasons. There's no M and A, or there's very little. Seracom got uh, acquired for 200 million by KDDI. That's huge improvement because before the only thing you could hope for I think it was web cash what they call the web pay acquired by line for about a billion yen so 10 million dollars um, a billion yen it's like it's like a billion cents <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how much we, did you we raise? are seeing an uptick in M&A's for sure but it's it's not at the point where those founders are now out and then going okay I'm going to put my money into yeah. the next I, I, I generation and, and we need that to like become to get a, a, a cycle a little bit differently like, uh, I've seen a lot more M&A happen in the last couple of years. And, like, just look at cash, for example. It got bought for, what, $70 million cash six months after it launched by DMM. Mm. And uh, I know that founder's putting out money. And, and I know there's quite a few founders putting out money. So uh, I think the money is flowing a little bit more. But the point's taken, like, there's still a not... It's early stage. Yeah. yeah. That's, good. That's really good to hear. Because without that, we're not well, going to get that flywheel going. I, I met three people before the show tonight that were involved with M&A in Japan. So it is, I mean, they didn't tell me what their deal flow is like, but they're out there, there's interest, there's, I mean, things are moving in the right direction. I meant M&A of like venture businesses yeah. in the sort of the IT or the oh, sort not, of Not the distressed M&A stuff, the oh, okay. actual, yeah. Not like, like real startup M&A. Bailing out JAL or something? Nah, nah, nah. Okay. Yeah, and, and like I think the flywheel is still going to go. I think there's more money going, but it's such a small start is where we are now. And usually most of the founders have more than 50%, and VC typically want, Japanese VC want them to have a big percentage. That's, that's another problem. I'm sorry, there are a lot of, I don't know if I should say greedy, there are a lot of ungenerous founders in Japan. And I think it's not a case of they're doing that intentionally. A lot of, a lot of people don't ask for stock options. They, they will happily break their backs working in a... In a, in a 
in a company and not get a lot of uh, not get a lot of options. They should be asking for them. Um, and the reason why is because if it's, you know it's very binary. If the founder decides to put out cash, great. If they don't, too bad. You're out of luck, and therefore no flywheel. But if one startup mints a few people with a couple of million dollars to spare, and they're thinking, I want to put half of that money into the next generation and, and mentor them, that's a flywheel. Yeah, I, I think we're seeing the first generation of that right now. And the stock option thing is really interesting. Just from the, the founders I interviewed only like three or four years ago, it was really unusual for a founder to be giving his staff stock options. Now it is the norm. Not everyone does it, but it's, it's unusual if you don't. And I, I think part of that attitude shift has been more and more uh, startups are being founded by teams you know, be a group of people. So it's kind of this group from the start rather than, you know, the one great man who establishes the company and just everyone else follows him. There, there is a sort of a, a thing that probably most of you don't see. I didn't see it until I looked at my investment contract for Series B. Um, and that was basically Shacho is seen as the company. And so you're, you're handcuffed to it. And they don't ask to, hand, you know, to, to sort of lock anyone else in. It's, it's just you, which is kind of short-sighted because you need your CTO, you need your chief of sales, you need all these people who are key founders and you want to keep them for as long as you can. But I think it's just a, an old way of thinking and it hasn't caught up. But yeah, yeah it does seem to be going in the right direction. Okay. But actually another thing, and this is just something that um, I'm going to break my own rule in comparison to San Francisco. <laughs> it's my podcast, my rules. Um, <laughs> You're vindicated. Yeah. <laughs> no, but the point still stands. It's a correct point. So, yeah, yeah, carry on, Tim. But no, no. It, it is even in San Francisco, um, foreigners have an oversized impact on the startup ecosystem. Um, there's a very large number of uh, American, non-Americans that start companies in Japan, in the U.S. and Japan. Um, and I'm wondering. What are your thoughts on, on why that is? I mean, I, I've got my own, but I want to throw that to you guys first. All the pilgrims go to Mecca. And for, without, sorry, for the, at the risk of sounding insensitive, that really is the, the, the heart of the dream of, of uh, startups and, and venture in the world. So yeah. they all go to the Bay Area because... But, but, I mean, it's not just San Francisco. If you go to Singapore, there's a very high percentage. The, the percentage of startup founders who are foreign is much, much higher than the the population. And within Japan as well, foreigners make up 2% of the population, but probably, I, I mean, I've never counted, but 8 or 9% of the, the startup ventures. Well, I think it comes down to incentives as well, right? Like if you're a Japanese founder to some extent, and you know, I feel like we've all been saying this for years, like it's changing, right? Like you can start a company and people will be like, oh, okay, great. But in America, that's a high five situation, right? You're starting a company, well done, high five, that's great. In Japan, there's still a large societal aspect of, oh, you couldn't get a real job. Oh, that's okay. Well, well, good luck with your company, right? Like it's That's Japan and my mother. Well, there you go. Four years yeah. ago, four yeah. years ago. I now have a real job, apparently. There you go, right? And so, Hi, Tim here. I guess you're wondering what I'm doing here right now. Well, I've got a bit of unfortunate news for you. Our recording equipment failed right in the middle of the show. Our sound man was able to rescue a tiny bit, and we'll add that on to the end, right after this little break. It's disappointing, of course. It was an amazing show, and I guess that makes the live show 
special bonus content that was only fully experienced by those 250 people who bought a ticket, came to the show, and had a few drinks. Sort of like a real-life version of Patreon bonus content. In a way, I guess this makes that evening one of the rarest kind of modern events. Something with no official record. Something not produced for mass market or social media. But something that happened once, in a specific place, with a specific group of pretty amazing people, who will all remember things slightly differently. But you know, for those of you who could not attend the show, I'm not leaving you completely in the dark. I've got a bit of a backup plan for you. It turns out my friend Jason Ball from Business in Japan was live-streaming most of the show. And while the audio wasn't quite clear enough for the podcast, I've got the transcript posted at the site as well as a link to his original video. So, while I get my recording equipment checked out, let's return to the tail end of the show. All right, I want to give a, a big hand to the people who have questions and to the panel. And let me wrap this up by, by saying that um, most of all, thanks for listening, and thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan. And we'll see you all next year.